No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shatter Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, Coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Merlia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Unfortunately, Merlia is not with us tonight. Uh, She she was called away, Uh, but we have a very special guest. I have a very special guest, uh, a man that's been on the show before. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, Admiral Joe Sestak, uh, congressman, former congressman from Pennsylvania's 7th District, three-star admiral, highest-ranking military officer ever to, to serve in Congress, uh, Ph.D., former presidential candidate. Uh, this man has done it all. You know, you don't know what to – I don't know what to call him. Do I call him doctor or congressman? Uh, Admiral, I mean, it, it's really, it's such an honor to have you back on the show, uh, Admiral Sestak. Thank you so much. Uh, Senator, it's great to be with you. And Joe, please, and as we, you and I once talked, my favorite title was Dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what? I say now that my kids are grown, I say that, you know, when when the girls want money out of me it, it, the, the a and daddy tells me how much they you know if it's daddy you know it's a little <laughs> bit of money but if it's daddy uh-oh yeah. you know they can't make the rent this month so uh, uh yeah my 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 most cherished title is dad as well well you know like i say you've done so many things there's so many things in the world that we could cover right now but one thing i'd like to talk about just briefly, and in, 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 if you can give us some insights in, into this, is what's going on with the North Koreans in terms of juxtaposed to what the Navy's doing. You know, obviously, uh, there, there were two more missile launches, uh, according to the Japanese, over the weekend, uh, and we're moving a carrier group, uh, into the, is it, the, I'm sorry, the Sea of Japan. We're, anyway, we're moving forward with the carrier group as a counter move. Isn't this a pretty dangerous game we're playing with the North Korean? Well, of course, any type of tit for tat can always escalate. However, this is actually resuming what has been routine for almost decades. Mm. We have not had for six years, any military exercises with South Korea. Primarily, I'm talking here, land. Part of that was the initiative by then-President Trump, which was an extraordinarily very different approach to trying to reach out President 
the leader of Korea personally and bring about a resolution of a deadlock that has, since the end of the Clinton administration, endured forever. I actually think when something isn't working according to established norms, that, okay, unlikely to work, but, you know, he did do that. Part of that, however, was some things that were given up, like exercising with a valued ally in South Korea. What happened was some weeks ago, there was an exercise with South Korea, of which the USS Ronald Reagan was somewhat near the area. And we are doing more aircraft carrier patrols there, not because of North Korea, but because of China. And it's increasingly hostile embrace of the South China Sea as its own against international law. And so that carrier then left, and there were some missile launches. And so the carrier was moved back just to show that, no, just a reminder, we're here if need be. The reason is is that we used to have uh, nuclear weapons on the Southern Peninsula, and by 1991 we withdrew them. But there is an unspoken commitment that if nuclear weapons were to be used by North Korea, and I say unspoken, we might, would, perhaps, could respond in kind. Now, that capability can come from Navy, Air Force, Army, but it is capable. And so this was a show of strength. In fact, people need to remember that we have an aircraft carrier stationed 365 days a year, a whole group in Japan. I advocated at the three-star admiral that we should place a second aircraft carrier in Guam. We have six or so submarines stationed there because the submarine fleet wisely knew that over the decades to come, beginning in about 2005 they did this, we would need submarines there to patrol that South China Sea and surreptitiously either sneak into ports like we did against Russia or then Soviet Union or just to surveil and see, map the terrain, get ready in case we ever need to do operations and let them know that we're nearby. It takes two aircraft carriers to survive in a 24-hour war. You operate aircraft for 12 hours. It's 5,000, 19-and-a-half-year-old average A sailors running that carrier. But after 12 hours, you need to let the flight decks crew and the pilots rest and have another carrier do it. That's why I advocated to there, because it would send the strongest of signals to China. We are here standing by for our allies and friends. Rather than having an aircraft carrier like the Ronald Reagan had done, initially come across at about 35 miles an hour, that is 30 knots, coming from San Diego, and it would take weeks to get there if suddenly a conflict erupted, and by the time they got there, you know, Taiwan would be already have occupied by China. So there, this is just merely an extension of the reason why we're there in North Korea. Bottom line is this. North Korea's conundrum. No one has been able to resolve it. China needs to be more. Others need to be more. But in the present state we are, it's going to really be more like bringing uh, peace to Ireland. It took 100 years. But we cannot continue to try in earnest with our allies and even those who are challenges like China to bring it about. But understand, make sure we have the defenses to shoot down any ballistic missiles like Aegis destroyers sitting in Japan's home port today can do for the defense of America if we go to conflict. And it's an awesome, a carrier group is an awesome amount of, 
of power. I, I mean, I, I happened to be in Baltimore one day and just uh, saw an aircraft carrier. Uh, I think it was a John F. Kennedy that was, you know, a half a mile away. And I was just, I was just flabbergasted at how, what a large, how they could get something that big to float in the water. But anyway, <laughs> is, is, is it part of a, is this part of a, an ongoing, you know, it seems to, to be, you're suggesting part of an ongoing thing. And, and can we go back a couple of steps? Was this, uh, China, uh, Backing Ukraine, backing Russia in Ukraine. So Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan to send a message to China. Hey, guys, don't get crazy here, uh, you know, and try anything with the Taiwanese. And I mean, is this just a continuation of that? Do you think because the Chinese are really the North Korean muscle, are they not? The I would uh, stepping back again from what you just said, some very interesting points there. I do not believe that those connections are linked to one another deliberately. I think mm. what Nancy Pelosi decided to do on her own was because she wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I wish she hadn't because I have always strongly believed that partisanship and stepping aside from U.S. Leadership, presidential leadership on foreign policy stops at water's edge. However, when she did make the decision, and China told her not to, there was no way we as a nation could back down to China. And they let her, them, dictate what occurred. That said, yes, China is helping, not as much as one might expect, but the buying oil of Russia, and to some degree we think perhaps even some very low-level munitions like ammunition. Again, all of this is relatively unclear, but it is still standing in a small crowd that supports verbally what Russia is doing. Stepping back again, is that carrier initially was there, yes, to support a South Korean exercise, but it is again demonstrating to China that we stand with allies like South Korea and Japan against you doing anything as becoming the new authoritarian world order. When I arrived in my Macaria battle group off the coast of Afghanistan, and you're right, it is called and, and is the most powerful individual group of weaponry in the world. From nuclear yeah. submarines in my battle group all the way up to a carrier to Aegis cruisers that could hit a landlocked country in Afghanistan. When I arrived there with this powerful group, waiting for us was another armada. We, I had about 15 ships, but waiting there was about another 20. They had come from around the world. Japan was there for that war in Afghanistan that was exploding. And it was the first time out of the Sea of Japan since World War II. Greece wow. was there. Germany was there that we had fought in World War II. <laughs> NATO had all come. And Italy, as it sent its ship, said, why? We are sending the ship because America has been attacked, and we will be there with them. Mm. The point of this is America cannot defend the security of its interest and our homeland singularly anymore, nor ever really probably could it. Once the Soviet Union came to great power in the late 50s and 60s, we need allies and friends. 
And they were not, as Mr. Trump would say, stealing our pockets of money there in NATO. They were requisite in order to have all that might, including Japan, including South Korea, Australia, the Quad Group now, to say, China, this is not your day to try to take Taiwan or to control all the oil reserves in the South China and minerals in the South China Sea. The importance of that carrier battle group is it is peerless as far as its might. But again, the breadth of the might of China today, as compared to uh, Russia, is why we need allies and friends and why England and other European nations like France have sent destroyers to patrol the South China Sea. Well, you know, that what you said about Donald Trump, you, you're in politics and, and, you know, that's an easy sell, right? We always uh, pe- people buy that uh, charity begins at home uh, uh, scenario, which is or, or, or rhetoric, which is something I never understood because I don't think given to yourself is it's really charity. But, uh, you know, they, they all right. We should uh, America first. Uh, for Donald Trump meant America only, and 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 uh, yeah, I agree a hundred percent that those days ended in nineteen fifties. Uh, uh, it, it's a new world order, and we need to embrace it. Uh, let me ask you: um, given that, what do you think about you know that everybody uh, is very very on edge right now? Uh, about the reports uh, and the rhetoric from Vladimir Putin that he might use conventional nuclear weapons. First of all, I didn't even know there was such a thing. I I think most people don't think of a nuclear weapon as anything but a doomsday weapon. They don't think of battlefield uh, nuclear weapons. And, And recently there have been reports that the Russians even have a protocol for using these on the battlefield. Do you think that Vladimir Putin, as a great military leader that you were, do you think he's been pushed into a corner where he could go this far? He is in a corner. There is no question about it. I think the likelihood of a nuclear weapon is low. I do think higher than that is, as he did in Syria, using chemical Uh. weapons. But that said, it is a possibility. The United States, you know, we shouldn't remember between 1950 and 1955, 56, we had a defense policy under President Eisenhower that was called the New Look. And it said we would use tactical nuclear weapons in the defense of our interest throughout the world. In fact, when the French, the last outpost in North Vietnam was about to be overrun, they asked us to defend it with nuclear weapons. And we stationed an aircraft carrier there with nuclear weapons, placed a beacon on its outer ridge in order to guide a plane and drop a tactical nuclear weapon there. I, it's a longer story than we have time for, but the Navy inadvertently transferred that aircraft carrier battle group away when the National Security Council meeting, deciding whether to use it or not to defend those French men left against the North Vietnamese overrunning them in 54, when the 
chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff said, is the nuke ready to go? His aide looked and said, no, the carrier has been rotated away for maintenance. <laughs> it it wow. just shows how the bureaucracy can do things wow. otherwise sometimes. Right. But oh, my point is this. Yes, we ourselves had a doctrine called flexible response in the defense of Europe. And we had said that if the overwhelming military might, conventional troops, no nukes, were overwhelming the NATO troops, including our own, we were going to use as probably a first strike to stop them dropping a few, quote, a few tactical nuclear weapons of 10 or less kilotons in the Warsaw Pact countries. We're in a scenario one might say we weren't, they aren't, food isn't first one to threaten this. Right. You know? Well, so the issue here is how do you control it? I think we have done. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't mean to talk about it. I I was just going to say often we forget we're the only country that's ever really used nuclear weapons. Absolutely. uh, So we can. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And so to part of that, unfortunately or fortunately, is our credibility that if he were to use a nuke, well, we're a little more credible that he could begin an escalation. I believe with the intelligence that came out today, yesterday, that it's someone who is inside his inner circle has gone in to see yeah. him and said, this is nonsense what you're doing. That we've begun to potentially understand that this conflict will continue, but I believe the chemicals... Even that is a lower, higher probability, but not a scoop possibility, but not a probability yet. The issue here, I believe, is the this, this following. Ukraine, more than any United States president, over the past, in the past five, seven months, as compared to any U.S. president over the past two decades, has shaped Russia more than ever one has done. What you have right now in Russia is a cornered president, but more than that, you have shown that his army is a Potemkin village. It was not able to do at all close to anything our intelligence community said it could. Second, it also has shown for the first time that there is significant protests going on, burning in Takistan, just one Muslim community, 50 enlistment offices as the mobilization of non-ethnic Russians is occurring. You have begun to have protests by others in the Czech community and others that things are, for the first time within the Federation, showing not insignificant unraveling and you have troops on the line that are shivering and cold and running from battle this is not insignificant that maybe maybe the real shape that will come out of this is a russia maybe similar to what putin had but one that understands that annexations as done by Crimea, Crimea in 2014, is a thing of the past. And it has stood, brought together the European Union as almost a, the strongest supporter of the military might behind Ukraine with finances and, and contributions from its fellow NATO countries that we are being brought together to shape China also. I think that's the real story coming out of all this with the one issue you have raised, can we ensure that escalation does not continue? 
Well, you know, NATO, I'm, I must say, NATO has stepped up to the plate, I believe, in, in, in this regard. Yes, and I think the U.S. response has really been good so far. I think we've done a, a really great job in supporting Ukraine. And I, I also believe that, that uh, uh, Mr. Putin forgot that the strong stuff that Russians have been uh, uh, historically made of uh, is also what the Ukrainians are made of. Uh, you know, that they're, I think the Ukrainians are a tougher adversary than, than he had considered. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I see a realignment here. And I worry about it. I worry about uh, we have a new neo-fascist leader in Italy. Uh, you know, we see uh, these movements of nationalism uh, spreading all over the world. We have Modi in India, uh, India, who has the largest standing army in the world. And we have, uh, you know, a nut in Venezuela. And... Uh, uh, I worry about this this realignment and how it will take shape. But uh, I, I, you know, uh, it, Senator, it, you have raised an absolute essential point that the public needs to be told and retold. I think yeah. this is really a moment where the rise of authoritarianism in particular in several world orders of wannabes, China and Russia, but aligned with, for example, the one Hungary, its leader who has aligned himself verbally with Putin, and all the others that you have mentioned, this is a moment in time that is a test if the democracies of the world will stand up to them. And the ability to win, and I mean win with Ukraine doing this, will be a telling moment to all the other authoritarian world orders. So three points. One, our alliances are critical if we are to do this, whether it is in Europe or whether it is over in China. Our strength of our alliances is vital. Second, please note what has really made this work, which you have mentioned. It is the Ukrainians, and it is their enlisted men and women. I'll never forget. When General Akramayev from the Soviet Union came over here, at the invitation of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Kral, during the Gorbachev era, the Soviet Union was about to fall apart. And Admiral Kral took him to his hometown of in Arkansas for a barbecue, but took him to Army bases, Air Force bases, out to an aircraft carrier, and as they flew off that carrier, the Admiral turned to General Akramayev from the Soviet Union and said, what did you most take away as the important point? in your two weeks here in America, and he said, it is your enlisted. We don't have people like that. You could see it. As they walk, they take them, they bring them into the military for four or five months, a brutal hazing, physical, and more hazing, and then they have six months or so before the year's up as conscripts, and they don't care after that. With minimal training, they go away. They don't have the strength of our of those 5,000 sales in aircraft air and 19.5 average A that run a nuclear reactor. That Tom Cruise, he has in two different great movies about Top Gun, but the real story isn't just turning that plane upside down. It is the mechanics that transitioned from the F-14 to the JSF he flew in his second movie and could fix that thing on a dime, and all that young 19-half-year-old does is stand there and the pilot salutes him in a signal. Will it work? 
and he salutes him back, and no word is said, it will. And third, warfare has changed dramatically, and the United States is lacking in this. We no longer are going to be ship against ship in the United States Navy. I advocated when I was the three-star admiral buying how many ships and how many personnel and how many uh, everything uh, running a $350 billion or $450 billion five-year defense budget as he was going to be, went and briefed Congress that we're not going to buy 12 aircraft carriers anymore. We're not going to buy 375 ships. We're going to buy about 240 and about nine aircraft carriers, and here's why. Future warfare has going to change, this is 2005, in the next 10 years against China. And it's going to be all about cyber warfare. You and I couldn't even talk right now if all of a sudden right. our phone lines were taken down. And if we were on Wi-Fi, we couldn't talk on that either. The Chinese are not targeting our ships as they come across anymore. They are going to make us blind and deaf. 17 of the last 18 war games run by RAND Corporation. The last war game last year run by the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He, all One man said we got our, quote, ass handed to us, unquote, because the brain was disconnected from the nervous system. And the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they knew everything what we were doing. Because things like Bloomberg's report, news report that said... The servers, not just for Apple, it said, and Amazon, but for Aegis cruisers and for CIA drones made where all the servers almost in the world are made in China, where we've outsourced our national security, have infiltrated chips in them. Those vital microchips that are like sleeper agents to be woken up when that Aegis cruiser wants to shoot its missiles, it turns on that chip, and all of a sudden the missile goes awry. That's the new domain of warfare. And you can be seen in how drones are taking down with a few wise enlisted men over there in Ukraine, flying over and taking out where a tank is no much of utility anymore. It is the Internet to be able to fly that Elon Musk gave them in his wonderful low satellite things to connect. Even in the Washington Post today, you can read about this a drone strike by cyber taking down artillery, and that is what future warfare primarily need. We need to carry ships to carry some weapons, but we should be changing to what we didn't do under Admiral Clark when he was Chief of Naval Operations in 2005. Those are the points I walk away from. Alliances are wonderful, trained, enlisted, and cyber offense and defense is what warfare is about in the future. Well, you know, I, I can't agree more about uh, soldiers and sailors from from the United States. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that I'm honored to have you on the show is that I know what great people all you military people are. I come from a military family. My brother was an F-111 pilot. Uh, yeah, these soldiers are among the, the soldiers and sailors are among the finest people that we we have to offer, and they, I, I can see where they really really make a difference and uh yeah we don't want to we don't want to hear these things i think admiral but they need to be said and you know about the change in warfare and how dangerous uh how precarious uh everything can be and is that a problem that putin's having is putin having a problem that his military is is outdated that their weapon yeah. systems are are old and you know without out of, out of step Yes, without a question. 
He had, we always focused in the past couple of years, they did the best and one of the newest hypersonic missiles. But how many did he have? You have not heard in the last week of any precision guided missiles being fired by Russia yeah. because they basically, we believe, have run out of them. They buy them and they have a small quantity of them. They have consistently, despite Putin trying in the last eight, nine years to transform the military, two things were not done. They did not train their troops of how to use the integration of forces so that you could have independent units operating in small groups in order to integrate the communications in order to strike and see by drones and other nice new types of technology things. And second, they didn't buy enough of that kind of stuff to do it. From the beginning of the war, their stuff was high, heavily stuff that was continued to be built from the Soviet era uh, problem. And that's the problem I mentioned about Navy ships today. We still get concerned that China's building a lot of ships. Okay, we should be somewhat watching that. But what are they doing on cyber warfare and artificial intelligence? Because in 2030, if everything goes towards as planned, every password that's on your computer and every password that's on a military computer can be broken in nanoseconds. Mm. And not only that, once they break them, they don't have, nobody knows that. They could go back and read everything in the last 10 years that computer has done and get all sorts of intelligence. That's the new domain of warfare. But yes, in Russia, you brought, we, our intelligence, unfortunately, led us to believe that numbers mattered rather than capability mattered, of which numbers have some value, but it's not like the old days with we used to count how many telephones are there in America, how many computers, right. laptop computers are. We, nobody even talks that way anymore. It's how much right. broadband do you have? Right. You know, how can you protect yourself from hacking? And that's what North Korea does very well, by the way. They have the Lazarus Gang that has almost cracked a few years ago, the Federal Reserve, and only at the last minute was it uh, incorrect spelling noticed about something on the order to transfer a billion of dollars. Hmm. Let me let me ask you to put on your uh, Middle East hat uh, and, and and shift the gears a little bit and talk about when we're talking about the new world order. Uh, what's up with OPEC? What's up with Saudi Arabia? Why do you think these guys want to cut two million barrels in in production at a critical time when the world economies are struggling to get back, uh, especially right before an election? Um, is this short sighted on their part? Just they're 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 being greedy. About the price of oil, or or do you think there's a political motivation here? Great question, and yes, I do believe that to a not insignificant degree, led by MSB, uh, <laughs> Mohammed, who is now the crown yeah. prince of Saudi Arabia, this was a direct snub of the United States of America, because we, as a nation, rightfully condemned his murder yeah. of a U.S. resident and put him on the bad boy list. And President Biden, which I didn't agree with, gave him that fist thump. 
and he did it and for some might say understandable reasons that he wanted to get them to produce more oil to keep you know prices down but it didn't work the issue here in my opinion that he is not unlike putin that he will do what he feels is right and as most young kings whether it's henry the <laughs> eighth or whether yeah. it's msb who's the crown prince right now running the nation you know, sometimes ego really comes down to gets to an individual like that that doesn't care about legacy or the people he rules. And so this was a direct snub, I think. That said, it's not quite as damning, although it is in perception as one might be. So, for example, to cut 2 million barrels, they are already producing 1.3% less than their target was over the last half a year. Many of the nations, because of COVID in 2020, when demand for oil plummeted, Nigeria and many other members of that could not ramp up for demand yet to do so. So the cut is nominally probably going to be less than 2%. It probably be, might, you know, it still will increase prices, probably not insignificantly, $100 a barrel. But I don't think that the, most of the damage, half the damage probably is already done. But perception is reality. Right. What you have here is OPEC, is uh, nations like the um, like Qatar and, and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and one or two others that will be able to actually reduce their demands. The others aren't going to do that because they haven't gotten up to what they want to since COVID. Because once you close demand down, it's hard to bring it back up. In the longer term, yes, I think it is going to be more harmful to Saudi's interest. They were aligned with us closely when they felt threatened by Iran. For whatever reason, they feel less so today. And perhaps they're right, perhaps they're wrong. But the key is, I believe this will only spur interest in nations like happening in Europe and is happening here in America finally with the Inflation Reduction Act to say we're not going to be held hostage again by anyone. Let's get to green energy. Yeah, buy an electric car, America. That's the way. To, that's the way to get even as far as as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's yep. let's let's uh, get rid of our uh, uh, dependency on oil. But given, let, let's move a little closer to home with politics, because I know that you're part of a new movement called the Forward Party. But first, I want to talk about the Democratic Party, because you've been a Democrat for a very long time, and, or was, and I've been no, a I still am, for a even though I joined the Forward Party. And, and I have a lot of problems with the Democratic Party. Um, you know, first of all, I, I absolutely believe what Will Rogers said, that I belong to no organized political movement. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> it's always been a problem of ours. Uh, and, 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 and two, I think that we've lost touch with America. I think Democrats have lost touch with America. And I know in your particular case, uh, when you were running in Pennsylvania, you had the Democratic Party turn against you, even though you were a candidate that beat an incumbent. You were you were everything the Democrats could want as far as a candidate goes. Uh, there was just some problem with you because you're an independent thinker. And you didn't, you know, according to 
to everything I've read. It was because he didn't lock, walk in lockstep with the party. Uh, the party most recently has done what I think is the single most despicable thing they've ever done, and that is they put $2 million into Trump to helping Trump deniers win the yeah. primary, their primaries, because they think they'll be easier to beat in the general election. That That's like the most cynical thing that that that, that I've ever heard of. We've, we've done a couple of shows with people who are former members of Congress. In fact, you you probably know most of them. Uh, uh, and and uh, they've signed on to a letter uh, asking the Democratic Governors Association and Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to stop doing this. But they haven't stopped. What do you think about this cynicism that, that it, it doesn't matter what we stand for anymore? It only matters if we win? And, you know, I feel that that uh, when I read a little bit, and I want you to explain to me uh, what the um, forward party is, but when I read a little bit, it seems that it wants to bring people together from, you know, all Republican, Democrat, Green Party people. And the show that you're on right now, that was the purpose when we started it nine years ago, was to have a Republican woman and a, a, a Democratic man, uh, when we started the show, my co-host was on the West Coast, and, and, and try to bring us together on the ideas to show that we're closer together on a lot of things than we are apart, and that the parties help separate us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the great separation we now have uh, in America between our two uh, major political parties. Do you believe that they that they make that happen, Senator? You hit it right on the head. You are exactly. I mean, you are ahead of the times when you established this radio show. It's exactly what the Ford Party is doing, and can it do it? Well, I want to take the last few minutes we have with uh, our great guests and um, uh, just follow up on the the Forward Party. So, how does the Forward Party work? Uh, Admiral, uh, you have, do you have a convention or are you going to have candidates? Uh, do you support particular candidates? How does that work? Yes, there will be a national convention next summer. They just had a partial convention in Texas this, about two weekends ago. But to state something clearly, um, this forward party is, I think, the first since effort to establish a third party that I think might come about. The last time it was ever done was with the Republican Party, where it was founded on one issue, not the extension of slavery into the Western territories, one issue. And out of that, eventually, it had, a few years later, a president of the United States elected that ended, that kept that nation together by the Civil War the Republican Party. Today, I feel the same way. The biggest issue, and the reason I joined, is that the biggest issue we have in America that is disarming us, so to speak, is the deficit of trust, the lack of trust. We have devolved into an us-against-them amongst the two-party. We're there, and it is us-against-them. Nearly everything is justified. And what we find is that each side is, is slamming artillery shells into the other side from their own pockets of an arsenal that they sit within, not talking to the other side. And so you sit there, 
and say, how will we ever come together? Look, I represented a nearly two-to-one Republican district. I won the first time, become the second Democrat since the Civil War, spent $3.5 million to win, but my second election two years later, I raised $3.5 million and didn't spend a penny of it on a single campaign ad because it's like a captain of a ship. I went to a town hall, and I just didn't give an answer. I sat there and said, what do you think about this, and had a dialogue. It's the reason I walked across Pennsylvania, and yes, it's true. My party said, stop in my Senate race. Go back and fundraise. No, sir. These people, after this recession, they don't any longer just want to know who I am. This Navy officer is a Republican. I said, well, I'm not a, a Democrat. Well, I used to say I'm an independent who happens to be a Democrat. They want to know if I know them, what they've gone through. So you've evolved like in a Democratic Party to say that, okay, we've got to forgive these uh, college loans. I understand the concern. But everything's got to be a win-win. What about that individual out there in the rural counties of Iowa or Pennsylvania? And he, at 55 years old during that recession, lost his job, and he doesn't have 600 bucks to learn how to be, not be a coal miner anymore or how not to be able to drive a tractor because they're autonomous now, but to get a different training to become how he can't afford to go there. And all of a sudden we're saying we're going to take care of this group but not you. We have forgotten that our sailors in the United States Navy that I spoke so highly of were composed of everyone, left to right, all colors, everything. And we came together, even though there was vital disagreements on how to do things correctly. And, yeah, can we do that again? That's why I joined the party. Because if America does not regain trust in its leaders, it will tear us apart. And even though we have done well with Ukraine, it is a singular almost issue because almost everything else that's been accomplished in the last – this administration, the other one, has been done by one party. And then the next party came up like this one and tears out all those executive orders that never got passed by legislation because people don't work together because they're lear- worried about losing their job. Men and women who are elected are no longer accountable to people above party because they're worried about holding or winning their jobs. That's not how a Navy ship leaves. That captain of a ship knows if that ship goes aground or that crew comes to harm, he will be held accountable. Because if he or she is not as captain of that ship held accountable and relieved by cause, if necessarily, that ship crew will no longer think uh, hold someone accountable, uh, trust someone who believes they are above accountability. And that, to me, is why this nation's people are saying, who's accountable for the meltdown on Wall Street years ago? Who's been held accountable for that misadventure, that tragic misadventure in Iraq? Who's held accountable today where you are doing something for one cohort of college-educated youth, but not for those who are the blue-collar workers that were once the Democrat stronghold? Yeah. That they are the ones who work with their hands and their mind, the artisans who gave this nation energy, who gave us of this nation, agriculture, who served in our wars. And now we say, as energy of coal and gas goes away, as the agricultures are bought by big conglomerates, and then they lose their ability to, having served in a war, to be a participating member of the economy. What about us, they say, is that great singer from Pennsylvania, Pink, says in her wonderful song. Pink, yeah, love her. We need people to talk together once again. 
Well, you know, I, I can't agree with you more about uh, about most of this stuff. I don't think that we understand. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds pejorative to call him the common man, but but the working class people that built our our party. You know, I often said that I often say I was born a Democrat. I was an orphan who got my first full time job at 14 years old. Dropped out of high school, had to work my way back in and work my way through college and, and, and graduate school. And, you know, my first decent paycheck came when I became a member of the Teamster Union, Teamsters Union. So, you know, I, I was a, you know, I was made a Democrat by the circumstances of my life. And I don't think we have that anymore. I don't think we understand who these people are. We talk down to them. We want to explain. We want to. I call it demsplaining. We want to demsplain to them, you know, that uh, they don't need a gun. They're just too stupid to realize it. Let let us demsplain it to you. Uh, and and we don't reach out to them. And that's been a, a terrible problem. And, and it's, it, you know, it's why you – I remember going to a, to a thing right after Trump was elected and having some woman stand up and say, as Democrats, we have nothing to be – ashamed of. And I'm like, of course we have something to be ashamed of. We got this man elected. It's as much our responsibility that he got elected as I it is the agree. Republican Party's responsibility, right? We I agree. Just, we, we absolutely need to stand up and put... You know, there used to be a thing, Admiral, tell me if I'm wrong, that uh, called being an American, that regardless of the regardless of the bumps and bruises and, and bad things, even during the Vietnam War when I protested. And, you know, there was still something called being an American. You were proud to be an American. You were supportive. You believed, right? You believed that tomorrow would be a better day. My children don't have this. I don't, I don't know about yours, but my adult children don't feel those same feelings of patriotism and, and, and other things that I felt. And, and I find it scary. And, and I don't, I'm not sure that third party is the, is the solution, but I, I think the two parties that we have now are not. So uh, are you going to throw your hat in the ring? Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Admiral, but it seems to me that uh, the forward party uh, might put up a, uh, pretty decent presidential candidate in supporting uh, Admiral Sestak. Oh, you're very kind to ask, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I joined it primarily to help move this issue of trust forward. Uh, yeah. No one ever knows what's ever going to happen, but that is not at all one of the reasons why I joined it. But I will tell you this and what you just said. I so believe that the Democratic Party has to look at itself over the last few years and say, how did we not keep the confidence and trust of what I call the enlisted men and women, the working blue-collar force in our military, who really are the equivalent to, the, that makes our military equivalent to those that we spoke about, the blue-collar worker in America. And the issue comes to James Madison. And, you know, he warned, like you did, about the factionalism from, from parties. But he said, the circulation of confidence, that is trust, is better than the circulation of money. And perhaps 
we somehow missed that how can you be trusted as a party or a leader unless you're listening to and talking with and being with those who are of all ilks of life. And I think we've stepped away from that. And that's why I'm primarily into trying to push out at least the concept that maybe the Ford Party is it, or maybe they'll catch on some other way that we need leaders who really can stand and and talk with somebody there in the rural counties of Iowa as they can in the cities of Philadelphia. Yeah, and I think we can do that. I think that, you know, the way to do it is common ground, right? We started the, the, the this conversation tonight uh, with you saying that, the, you know, your, your most and your, your highest rank is that of dad. And, you know, and I agree with you. That's my highest rank, too. And that's I, I think that's how we do it. We come together on our common interests, right? We all love our children. We all want to see a better tomorrow for them. And I, I think we have to work on those issues to regain that trust because you're right. Nobody – there's such a lack of trust, and I see it so much – I see it so much with my kids, and I try to say to them all the time, look, I'm a high school dropout who was orphaned at the age of 15. I've been on my own for years in in a country that gave me a second chance, allowed me to go to college and graduate school, and, and, and I became things in America that I couldn't have become anywhere else in the world. I'm absolutely yes, convinced of that. Absolutely convinced of it. M- mostly because of brave men and women like you that have provided that opportunity for so many of us. And they just, they don't see it that way. They really don't. And it, and it really hurts me. And I don't know what we can do to get that message across. But, but I want to say to you, Admiral Joe Sestak, uh, thank you so much for your service to America, uh, not only as a, as a distinguished naval officer, but as a, a member of Congress. And thanks for still being out there working, trying to make this a better place, because uh, I think that we agree this country is, is a wonderful place and we both love it and, and, and we should do what we can to make it a better place better place for all of us. Now, let me ask you before I let you go, what do you want to say that I haven't given you the opportunity to say? I I just want to say one thing that, and you hit upon it. I still truly believe very strongly that as I just kind of go around locally and stand there and take the time out uh, to talk to, as I'm visiting a hospital, talk to a healthcare aide, or whether it's in a supermarket and I'm just chatting with somebody because there's nobody behind me in the line, that, yeah, I mean, I know people say this is reaching for something, but it's not. I really believe that deep down there's this still desire that people just want to feel good about America again. And, and you know, every one of us had that teacher in high school or had that was a leader. Everyone has had a coach or every one of us had somebody who reached out and said something and then was there not just for the words but for the deed of doing it and made a difference. It's why every time I went into an African-American church, 
because my party said I couldn't go to any Democratic events in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, which is 40, 60% of the vote. So wow. I went to over 200 African-American churches, and they welcomed me every time. And every time I got up to introduce myself, because that's what they do at Mother Bethel and every single one of those yeah, great African-American churches, they introduce yourself, please. And in that 30 seconds, I would merely say, look, I'm Joe Sestak, and um, I am presently running for ex-Senate, but I just want you to know that I, I served in the military for 30 years. And I always remember that wonderful saying from the great book of Isaiah, where God turns to Isaiah, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Mm -hmm. And I didn't say the next phrase. Everyone in the community, that congregation, would say it for me. Uh, Here I am. Send Send me. me. Because the African community understands that their way out of often poverty was through the U.S. military. But that's no different than someone else going into community in this nation, the rural communities, where 17 of the hospitals in Iowa lost five of them in the past, you know, five years, or where, and so there's no hospitals there for them over there, and and the farmlands are now owned by congregations, so small stores have gone away because there's not very residents, and there they sit, but someone could reach out and say, here's training for a lifetime. We're going to train you in this. Here I am, send me to that. And yeah, I believe it's not that difficult to gain that spirit of Americanism is on that shining hill once again. But it takes someone who doesn't speak the words, but goes to someone and then does the deed of acquiring that program, that one step they need to just get back up the line of that wonderful American dream. So I think it's more than doable it just requires what's a dearth today, true leadership, willing to be counted people of the party above self. Well, that's the perfect place to end it. And, uh, you know, we always end our show with a song. Uh, we dedicate this to you, Admiral Sestak. Uh, this is about going boldly into the future, bravely embracing uh the future and 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 uh, uh, moving forward with great courage and conviction—something that you've always done. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Here's Van Morrison with "Into the Mystic." We'll see you next week. Thank you, week. Senator. Thank it's you. great to be aboard with you. Thank you, Emma. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun And the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic